was just thinking how many times there's been a preacher step to the pulpit and the people have no idea what's about to come. And that's not the case. That's usually not the case in our church. And it's certainly not the case today. If you've been paying attention, you know what's to come. Please turn in your Bible to the New Testament book of 1 Peter. We're studying through this letter written by Peter to the resident alien Christians, the elect of God, living in a foreign land, waiting for the day when they can go to their heavenly home. We have considered the salutation, the greeting of this letter, and looked at some of the great truths packed here in it. And we've seen here that the elect of God, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, we biblically considered foreknowledge, and we saw the Trinitarian nature of the salvation that we have, and the covenant seal by the blood of Christ. Today we'll reread the salutation, we'll read the first eight verses. And then our focal text will be verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. An apostle of Jesus Christ, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. Reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, unspeakable, and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Heavenly Father, we pray that you bless your word. We ask again for sanctification and for salvation. God, what we need, what we long for what our souls are desperate to receive today we cannot do 
this preacher cannot do. But God, we know that you accomplish this work by your word and your spirit. So help us to hear nothing of this preacher, but to hear the voice of our Savior Jesus Christ. And that by your spirit applying your word to us, that we would have salvation, that we would have sanctification being grown up into Christ Jesus. God, we pray that you would do this for your glory, for your kingdom, and for our good. Amen. Verse 3, our focal text I mentioned, begins with a spontaneous doxology, a statement of praise and worship of the living God. And at the outset, I'd like to take just a moment to speak about praise, to think about worship. Uh, in the first place, we need to note that worship and praise does not bypass the mind. That worship does not uh, go around the intellect, our thinking. Rather, our minds are fully engaged in praise and in worship. The Bible tells us that God is seeking worshipers, seeking worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. So we see here that worshiping in truth, God is not looking for us to unplug the brain, to take off our thinking caps and just worship with an empty self. The mind is engaged when we worship in truth. But there are those who believe and we hear spoken of often. We, we hear worship talked about as though the best worship, the greatest worship is found in loud music or maybe soft music or emotionally moving music. Great worship, some would say, involves certain movements of the body, clapping hands, raising hands, eyes closed, swaying of the body or dancing. But these actions, these things, in and of themselves may not have anything to do with worship. You think about those things, loud music, soft music, clapping of the hands, raising of the hands, swaying or dancing, eyes closed. You can see any of those things in any music concert that you go to and it may have nothing to do with the worship of God. But the best examples, the best opportunities for praise and worship, I submit to you, don't even occur in the part of the service that many call worship. 
Some distinguish, they differentiate. We're going to go to worship and then preach. And they're calling the music portion. Now, last week we talked about music and, and how important it is. I'm not trying to downplay music, but what I'm saying is the greatest parts of worship don't occur, should not occur in the part that we call worship when we mean music. The point I'm making here is that worship can and should be most often seen as what happens when the word of God is preached. What you're doing now should be more worshipful than what you were doing when we sang that wonderful song. We hear the truth of God, who he is and what he has done and we respond to it as the word is preached moment by moment. Sometimes we respond. Sometimes we respond by ignoring. Sometimes we respond by tuning out and not listening. And that is more worship of self. But what we should do is respond in the deepest recesses of our hearts through our intellect, through the mind, by expressing gratitude for what God has done, by acknowledging him for who he is, by ascribing to him the glory that is due to his name, we should worship him as his word is proclaimed. And this is what we have here in verse three. Peter has very briefly accounted in the salutation, the electing grace and the foreknowledge of God, the cleansing and the covenant seal of the blood of Jesus Christ. And then he responds and he leads us to respond with expressions of praise and worship. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And our minds are fully engaged here as we worship. These statements that Peter gives us are not vapid statements. They're not empty words. These worship words engage our minds. So I'd like for us to engage our minds and see what is said here. Let me, let me say this. I, I just wrote this note just a few minutes ago. Worship is what God seeks. The Father is seeking worshipers, and rightly so. He must be worshipped. If we would not worship, the rocks would cry out. Worship is what the Father seeks. Worship is what you were created for. You want to find fulfillment? You want to find that thing that you say, this is it. This is what I was made for. It's worship. Sin. When we step into sin, it is the opposite of worshiping God. It is worship of self. It is worship of the creation more than or instead of the creator. Sin is the opposite of worship. Peter begins here by saying, blessed be God. 
Blessed be God or blessed, if you want to say it that way. Blessed be God or blessed be God. And, and we think of, we need to think about what this statement means. Uh, we use that word bless, don't we? <coughs> Thank you. Bless you. And, and what we mean by that, I didn't really sneeze. It's okay. <laughs> what we mean by that when we say bless you is we are, we are, uh, we are wishing, we are hoping for an improved condition. We are hoping for an enrichment of that person's well-being. Bless you. And, and by the way, that's a, that's a good thing to say, right? It's a good thing to say. But when we read here and when we worship and we say, bless God, are we saying the same thing? By blessing God, Peter is not adding anything to God. God is not improved by this blessing, nor is Peter wishing for anything more or greater for God. That's what we mean when we say bless you to one another. That's not what is meant here because what God is, he is eternally. And God does not change. For God to change, even if he were to be more blessed, for God to change, he would either have to go from a worse condition to a better condition. And if that's the case, then he was not God before the change. He would have to go from a worse condition to a better condition, or he'd have to go from a better condition to a worse condition. And in that case, he would no longer be perfect. In either case, any being that undergoes change is not God. Do you know the one thing that characterizes all of life on this earth? Change. Change. We are we we mark time by change. And God does not change. So here, Peter is not asking for a change in God. He is not asking for an enrichment of God. Blessing God does not add anything to God. Rather, blessing God expressed in worship is ascribing to him the blessing and honor that are already his. It's an acknowledgement on, on our part as creatures that God the Creator is the only God and we are attributing to Him all that is due to Him. Bless your name. That doesn't change Him. That's who He is. And we're just saying that. We're just acknowledging that and describing. So we worship with Peter in saying, Bless be God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So secondly, we note here that he says God and Father. Now I would remind you that last week we talked about inseparable operations of God. And we said that all of God's work as it pertains or in respect to creation are common to all three persons of the Trinity. When God acts toward his creatures, his actions are undivided. The father doesn't do something independently and separately from the son and the spirit. When God acts, all of the Godhead acts. 
And we said to reinforce this idea, there is one God, there is one power, there is one glory, there is one wisdom. So today when we read here and when we say, blessed be the God and Father, we are attributing, we are appropriating this to the Father. But we remember that there is one glory and all glory belongs to all of the Godhead. And we know that this statement blessing the father does not exclude, as it were, the, the son and the spirit. But there is something here of mentioning God as father, God as the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the God and father. So it reads, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in this, we need to see the humanity of Jesus. And we need to see the deity of Jesus, both here in this text. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, as the only begotten and eternally begotten Son of the Father, is blessed every bit as much as Father and Spirit. But when we see, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, this causes us to think about His humanity. Christ, the Son of God, became flesh. He entered into, He joined into the human race as one of us. You hear me say it this way, as our brother in humanity. He's one of us. So that he might bear our sin and that he might be our savior. And Jesus worshiped God according to his humanity. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This statement makes us to think, right? This, this should engage our minds. And we are to think about the union in this person of Jesus, the union of God and man together. Now, don't try to completely comprehend it or your brain will explode. But we are to think about it. He became the God man with two distinct. We don't we don't know anything of this. We are one nature, one person, one body. But he is two distinct natures in one person for eternity. For eternity, he is fully God and fully man. Jesus didn't just become the God man during his time on earth and now he has no longer a part of the, he is still our brother in humanity, even now as he intercedes for us, as he prays for us. So even in this first phrase, there's so much to engage our minds here, to engage our intellect, to bring us even further to praise and worship of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly, we see that it is God who has caused us to be born again. Who has caused us some of you might need to look at that in your Bible because some of you might not believe it, that it is God who has caused us to be born again. By the statement, God has caused us, we see that God is the instrumental agent of our salvation. 
God is the instrumental agent of our salvation. Are you born again? Then it was God who caused you to be born again. Why are you born again? God caused me to be born again. This really fits into what we have learned about foreknowledge and what we've seen about election over the past couple of weeks. God is the actor. God is the one who initiates. And any action that we have, and there must be action on our part, but any action that we have is ultimately in response to his instrumental agency, to his initiative action. God initiates, God acts, God causes us to be born again. Boy, I thought, I thought Paul addressed God's sovereignty and salvation. Maybe you did too, and he does. But don't overlook Peter. <laughs> because here in these first three verses of this letter, Peter is hammering home God's sovereignty in salvation. You are the elect according to the foreknowledge of God. And now God has caused you to be born again. We cannot miss this. It's hammered home for us. So it's clear from this text that God is the instrumental agent in our salvation. It is he who causes us to be born again. But someone may be thinking of another verse. And I know that Brother Jeff was thinking of this other verse this week. Because we read it and we sang about it. Someone may be thinking of another verse. Remember when Jesus spoke to Nicodemus. You don't have to think back. We just, we just read it. Our brother just read it to us. Jesus spoke to Nicodemus and he said this. You must be born again. You must be born again. Peter says God causes us to be born again. In John we read that Jesus said you must be born again. That sounds like a command. You must be born again. Sounds like a command. There's another verse that it, it speaks of the same thing. It speaks of salvation but it's speaking not in terms of new birth or birth but it's speaking in terms of being dead in sin and being raised from the dead. Paul in Ephesians 5 commands the reader awake O sleeper and rise from the dead let's strike anybody as a strange command you must be born again awake O sleeper and rise from the dead how is it that a dead person can obey the command to rise from the dead how is it that Jesus can command you must be born again because we even know from the Bible text of 1 Peter that it is God who causes us to be born again. How can these, boy, that sounds like Nicodemus. How can these things be? This is paradoxical. And, and some will walk away in frustration or they pick one or the other. Well, the Bible says God causes, so I'm going to stay with that. Or, well, the Bible commands awake and, and arise from the dead. I'm going to stick. And, and we can't do that. We can't just pick one or the other. Both are true. Both are in the scripture. So we must get this. We must understand some things about this. God's work is laid out for us in our text today. God causes us to be born again. 
We can't argue with that. It's plain. God is the one who takes the sinner who is dead in trespasses and sin and makes us alive together with Christ. By the way, that is stated clearly in Ephesians, uh, the end of one and two. Before he says, arise from the dead, he says it's God who does that. Although the Bible tells us about God's work, there is no time that we are to participate in that. There's no time that we are to take credit for that or to say, I want to do God's work. That's the work of God. God causes us to be born again. God is the one who does this work. And we don't help God do his work. But when God makes us alive, when God causes us to be born again, God does it God's way. And his way is to use the instrument of faith. Faith that is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Faith is the gift of God. Faith is the alone instrument or the only instrument of justification. So God causes us to be born again. And when we are born again, he gives us faith that now we are to exercise. Now we are to do. We couldn't do when we were unborn, when we were dead, but God Raises us from the dead, brings us to life and gives us new birth, causes us to be born again. And now we are to employ this instrument of faith, exercise faith. God's sovereign work in salvation does not erase the command for us to repent of our sin and to believe in Jesus. I thought that was God's work. Let God worry about God's work. What's your work? Repent and believe. God causes us to be born again. Now, sinner, you must be born again. Repent of your sin. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Lost person, know that God is the instrumental agent in salvation, but also know that you must repent of your sin and believe in Jesus Christ to be saved. The text tells us that God causes us to be born again. Born again. I've been saying it and we act like that's a regular thing. That, that's not something we use in our, we, we don't use that kind of language at the grocery store. We don't use that kind of language at the office when we're doing our work. Born again. But this is not the first time we've heard this language. We know that this language was used by Jesus when Nicodemus came to him by night. And we read in John 3 of being born again. And then here Peter picks up this born again language. In 1 Peter chapter 1, he also uses it. If you look down in verse 23, you are born of an incorruptible seed. But why, why do we speak about salvation in this term? Why is the birth imagery proper for us to speak about being saved, to speak about salvation? First of all, Jesus used it. So that's the first thing Jesus used. So we know that it's a true and right way to talk about salvation. Jesus used it. It also fits with the other major word picture 
of a lost person without Christ. The other primary imagery is that of a dead man. We are dead in sin without Christ. We have dead hearts of stone. And together with this birth imagery, we get the picture of the plight of a lost person. Deadness in and of itself. We don't have to have a lot of explanation about deadness. A dead man cannot help himself. He cannot do anything to change himself from death to life. And in the same way, an unborn baby can't change its circumstance. Unborn baby stuff happens to him or her, not by him or her. We speak when we talk about baby. Oh, the baby's coming. When's that baby going to decide to come? We talk about that, don't we? That baby will come when he wants to. We say that, but isn't that silly? I mean, we know what we're talking about. What we mean is nobody knows when that baby's coming, but the Lord. <laughs> the Lord's the only one who knows. But that baby's not deciding. I think today's the day. I, I've always wanted a birthday. You know, that baby's not making that decision. It's the mother's body which begins the labor and birth process. The baby does not birth itself. The mother does the labor to bring about the birth. In the same way, a sinner cannot cause himself to be born again. It is God who causes us to be born again. The same way it is with the physical birth of a baby, it is with the spiritual birth. It's a great picture that Jesus used that we have from Scripture. And this shows us the hopeless and desperate plight of a sinner who is lost, dead in trespasses and sins. Salvation cannot be brought about by yourself. Salvation can only come by the goodness, by the grace of God. Salvation is not coming to you because you are good enough. If you're trying to get good enough, give up. That's never going to work. People spend too much time in their life. They waste too much time in their life trying to get good enough to come to God. By the way, you've already messed that up. Perfect is the goal. And you've already blown that. There is no perfect you're not saved because you're good enough. You're not. Salvation is not because you showed enough sorrow for your sin. If I grovel, if I, if I show myself to be so sorry, maybe God will look on me and he'll say, that, that's not quite sorry enough. Oh, okay, that's sorry enough. You are now sorry enough for your sin. I'll say that's not how it works. We're not saved because we're good enough. And we're not saved because we're sorry enough. Salvation is only because God is gracious and kind. And he saves. This is his nature. God is a saving God. Without new birth. There is no hope for a lost person. When Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, and we just read it, he said, you must be born again. But he also said, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You know what makes it kind of worse? Unless you were born again, you cannot. He said that same passage. 
You cannot see the kingdom of God. You can't even see it, much less get there. You cannot do this to yourself. It's by God's grace. It is God who causes us to be born again. So for those who have a desire to enter the kingdom of God, for those whose heart longs to be saved, to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus, the good news is that God is working. When he's done, he's going to come back. So we know he hasn't come back yet. He is working. He is still saving. And you wouldn't even see the kingdom if God was not working. You only desire to be saved. You only desire to be forgiven of your sin by the blood of Jesus by the good grace of God. So he is working. Repent now of your sin. By faith, run to Jesus for forgiveness of sin and for hope of eternal life. Not only life one day to come, but Jesus said, I came that you might have life abundantly. And that's not one day life, that's now. Christians, we ought to be living in life abundantly. That hope of eternal life. That's the next thing we see in the text. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again to a living hope. It says to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We are born again to a living hope. We were in our lostness, in our trespasses and sins, we were dead to righteousness and very much alive to sin. You were born from your father and mother. You were born into this world and you were born into sin. You were born into that state. You were born into sin. But when we are born again, when we have new birth, we are not born to sin. We are born to a living hope. We are born to a living hope. And Jesus is that living hope. Everything that we are born unto is tied up in him. Ephesians makes it clear. We won't take the time to turn there. But Ephesians makes it clear that the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Let's pause for a moment and think of the power. All power sources that we have on this earth. Everything that you've ever seen that could be a power source. Think about that and think about if we can raise a person from the dead. Now think about the power that, is, that it takes to raise a person from the dead. Ephesians tells us it is that same power that brings us to spiritual life. It is that same power by which we are born again. When we are born again. It is by the same power of God, the same resurrecting power. And this is our hope. This is our assurance of life. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He was, the Bible tells us, he is the firstborn from the dead. 
He is the firstborn from the dead. Now, just as quickly as we can, that does not mean that Jesus was the first one, the first member of humanity to be dead and then be alive again. That that's He was not the first to be born again, but he is the firstborn from the dead. What is meant by that? Jesus in his resurrection was first in power, first in priority, first in importance. Let's say it this way. If Jesus is not raised, then no one will be raised. If Jesus is dead, then we are all dead. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we will be raised. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have been raised from spiritual deadness unto life, made alive together with Christ, and we shall be raised from physical death at the last day. We are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. And then I'm going to try to close here. But I want to back up to the beginning of this little refrain of worship. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I kind of skipped over this part. Some of you are going to ask me about it later. Who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. According to his great mercy. Let us be reminded those who have been caused by God to be born again. Let us remember that it is out of and according to his great mercy. Don't you ever think that God had to save you? Don't you ever think that God needed to save you? If God never saved a single human, there would be no change in you. You are saved merely out of and according to His great mercy. God in saving demonstrates who he is and we are recipients of it undeserved benevolent mercy and in showing you mercy in showing you mercy God could not simply withhold the punishment and wrath that you deserve because of sin God couldn't just say, don't worry about it. I'm going to overlook it. He could not say that. If he did that, he would not be just. But in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross of Calvary, God revealed that he is just and the justifier. God meted out to Jesus the punishment due for sin that day on the cross. The punishment due for my sin and for the sin of everyone who will believe in Jesus. God measured out 
his wrath and judgment on the cross of Calvary and delivered it to Jesus Christ on our behalf so that he could show his great mercy to you and to me and to everyone who comes to Christ by repentant faith. I've written to you briefly exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. God, we ask that you apply these things to our heart for your people who, who maybe have walked with you for quite some time. Lord, remind us where we were. Let us never forget. Let us never forget our lostness, our hopelessness and, and help us that the gospel, when we hear it, would bring us to praise and to worship. It would bring us to engage our minds and our hearts fully. That we would be worshipers in spirit and in truth. And God, for those who are here today, young and old, who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ, who, who maybe know about Jesus dying on the cross, who, who know some facts, maybe know a lot of facts, but have never said, even though, even though they may have said Jesus is a Savior, Jesus is the Savior, they've never said, I need Jesus to be my Savior. I trust in Him fully. He is my Lord and my Master, and I will obey His command. I yield and surrender every bit of myself to Him. God, we pray that Your Holy Spirit would work, that Your Holy Spirit would apply your word, the gospel of Christ to the sinners. As we come to the table, we pray that our worship would be accepted. It's in Christ's name that we ask.